We continue now with our study of Paul's letter to the Romans, and we are at present in chapter 9, and this evening I will be reading verses 6 through 13, Romans 9, 6 through 13, and Leslie, what's wrong with this picture? You know, it's dry up here. <laughs> I'll ask the congregation to stand for the reading of the Word of God. But it is not that the Word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, The older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray, shall we? Again, our Father, as we give our attention to this weighty matter of Your sovereign grace in election that raises so many difficult and troubling questions in our minds, we ask that You would give us ears to hear what has been set down in this text for our instruction and for our edification that You would give us humble minds and hearts, that we may be willing to submit to Your Word rather than to fight against it with our own. Grant us in Your mercy now the assistance of Your Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth, as we grapple with these things, for we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. Before we look at the text that I have just read, I want to finish up briefly with the last portion of the final verse that we treated last Sunday evening. Earlier in chapter 9, Paul had given his solemn affirmation of his profound love and concern for his kinsmen according to the flesh. Israelites, 
and gave something of a panegyric in which he celebrated all of those things to which the whole church is indebted to the Israelites, for they were the one to whom pertained the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, and those things that we looked at last week. And that section was concluded by these words, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. So that Paul is indicating here that our Lord came in His incarnation out of the seed of David, and touching His human nature, He came, caught a sarka, according to the flesh, out of the ancestry of the Jews. But that segment of that sentence calls attention to the human nature of Jesus, but the final clause is one that we dare not skip over too lightly because Paul concludes this statement by saying that Christ came, comma, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. So on the one hand, when Paul affirms the human ancestry of Jesus, the human nature of Jesus that is manifest in His incarnation, he does not stop there, but gives one of the most clear and decisive affirmations of the deity of Christ that we find anywhere in Scripture. Because in the last portion of this text, he said, he refers to Jesus saying, Christ came who is over all, over all things. And in this case, it's ponta tauta in the language, meaning that this reference of all things refers to the entire universe. And it is an expression, a phrase that was commonly used by the Jews to refer to the dominion of God over the entire creation. It is synonymous virtually with the expression that God is the Most High God. And in this text, it is Christ who is said to be over all things. And then the final clause reads, the eternally blessed God. Now, there are some who would uh, uh, attack the biblical concept of the deity of Christ and try to change the syntax here of that last verse and interpret the text or translate the text in these, uh, in these terms, referring to Christ who is over all, Christ who is blessed eternally by God. That is, this refers to Jesus' lordship over the earth that is given to him by God, and this lordship is a gift and a manifestation of divine blessing upon Jesus, which would not require him to be himself divine, to be one who is the recipient of a blessing that goes on forever. 
This could be said of any one of you who is a believer in Christ, that you are blessed of God, and the blessing that you have received by, or from God in terms of your salvation is a blessing that will go on for all eternity. But again, that's a torturous uh, approach to the syntax of this particular passage where the apostle is referring to Jesus as the eternally blessed God. And after he makes this profound affirmation of the full deity of Christ, he pauses in his writing here and interjects the word, Amen. That is the word that the Jews used to affirm the truth of a statement. When people in our churches today respond to the preaching of the word, by shouting out from the congregation an experience that you've rarely heard in this staid assembly of God's frozen chosen. But when somebody does say, Amen, they are saying, I agree with that. That is true. It's the term that Jesus would use when He would preface His teaching to His disciples that we see translated truly, truly, I say to you, or other translations, verily, verily, I say to you, Jesus was actually saying, amen, amen, I say to you. This comes from the word emuth, which means truth. And here, Paul, after making this profound affirmation of the divine nature of Christ, punctuates it with this word, which every Jew understood to be a clear affirmation of truth, Paul says about his own writings, amen. What do you say? Thank you very much. I knew it could happen (laughs) at some point. Sometime I'd like to see it happen without coaching. Let's now turn our attention to the text that I read earlier. But it is not that the Word of God has taken no effect. Now, I want you to follow closely the reasoning of the apostle. He has already lamented the situation and the fate of his fellow Jews, his kinsmen according to the flesh, who even though they had the covenants and the promises and all of these things, have missed out on the redemption that has been brought to them by the Messiah. And so it would seem that all of these promises, all of these covenants that God had made with His people in antiquity were to no avail. We read that Jesus came to His own and they received Him not. His very people were the ones who turned against Him and would raise the question, does this mean that all the promises of salvation that God has made through the centuries have come to naught? That the Jews have failed to understand those promises They've missed their Messiah and that whole plan of redemption that God was unfolding through the ages, through 
Adam and through uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and down through the ages has ended in destruction. Paul said, no, no, no. It's not as if, he says, the Word of God has taken no effect. Last Sunday night, I joked with you a little bit. I made reference to a statement that I had made several weeks, if not months ago, and asked if anybody remembered it, and only one or two people indicated that they had, and I jokingly said, what what am I doing here? Why do I bother to uh, expound the Word of God when people can't remember it for three weeks? Well, here's the truth of that matter. I don't remember what I preached on three weeks ago, and most of you don't either. And in a very real sense, that doesn't bother me at all. Because my job is to open the Scriptures to you, to expound them as carefully and as accurately and as persuasively as I know how. But the efficacy of that preaching, the power of that exposition, thank God never lies with me. That's not on my shoulders. I am not responsible for the effect that the Word of God has upon the hearer. God is the one who takes His Word and applies it to people. The Spirit of God is the one who works with the Word of God to pierce your souls. And it is impossible for the Word of God to be without effect. So if you forget something I say or the whole sermon or all the rest, doesn't bother me because I know that God the Holy Spirit is going to take that Word where He wants to take it, and He will hide it in your heart, and you may not even know that it's hidden there. You may not even be able to remember. But you're different because you've been affected, because that's the power of the Word. And Paul says, don't think for a minute that just because the Jews of this particular generation or those who rejected the prophets throughout history, make the Word of God of no effect. God will not permit His Word to return unto Him void. And so Paul reminds his readers of that, saying, as he had said earlier in this epistle, they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. He has to work against this idea that salvation is passed on biologically or through the visible community of the nation of Israel. Just as we distinguish in the Christian church following St. Augustine between the visible church and the invisible church, 
the point of that distinction is that not everybody who, are, who is a member of a visible church, not everybody who stands up and says, I believe, or who enlists their membership in a local congregation, not everyone who is in that category is saved. Not everybody who's in the visible church is numbered among the elect. But only those who are saved are in the invisible church, and it's called invisible because we can't read the hearts of the congregation. I don't know who in this group who is here tonight who have made professions of faith for Christ have made a true profession. Maybe that profession was made by your lips and while your heart was far from Him. I can't read your heart. I can hear your words. You can't read my heart. But God can. And the invisible church is absolutely manifest to the scrutiny of Almighty God who knows His own. And though we may seek to fool our fellow citizens about our state of grace, nobody has ever fooled God about the state of his or her heart. And so we make that distinction. It's the same distinction that Paul's making here. Just because somebody is an ethnic Jew, just because he's a member of the commonwealth of Israel, does not mean that that person is saved. Remember, the Pharisees fell into that trap. They said, we're the children of Abraham, as if that automatically guaranteed them entrance into the kingdom of God. But Paul said, no, not all of Israel is of Israel, the true Israel. Not every Jew is a child of promise. And he looks to the Old Testament itself. But just because you're the seed of Abraham is no guarantee that you're in the kingdom of God because Ishmael was a child of Abraham, but Ishmael was not the child of promise. But Paul reminds his readers that it is in Isaac that your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At that time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. Now, before we go on to the rest of this text, let me go back a week or so to what I told you was at stake in the reading of chapters 8 and 9 of Romans. I've already declared to you that in my opinion, and I think the opinion of church history, is that even though the Bible from Genesis to Revelation teaches the unconditional election of God in His sovereign grace, there is no portion of Scripture that teaches it more clearly more persuasively and more compellingly than Romans chapter 9. And it is so clear, I believe, and so compelling here in this text that I wonder often 
how any Christian person can read closely this chapter and not come away being utterly convinced once and for all of the unconditional character of our election, that our salvation rests ultimately on the grace of God and on the grace of God alone, not based on anything we've ever done or will do. And I said, yet in spite of the perspicuity of the text, in spite of its clarity, we have people, in fact, the majority of professing evangelicals in our day who deny the doctrine of unconditional election. And so I raised the question then, I said I would address it later, how do people get around this? And basically, there are four ways. The first and most common way is by systematic avoidance of the text. People don't want to have to deal with it. You almost have to take them by the scruff of the neck and rub their noses in it to make them take it seriously. I don't know how many times I've been engaged with discussions. I had a radio interview not too long ago with, with a radio host who was, he was absolutely allergic to anything regarding the sovereignty of God in election. And every time I tried to take him to chapter 9 of, of, uh, of Romans, he steadfastly refused to go there. And instead, what he did was what was common. He kept reciting text after text after text in the rest of the Bible that tell us that people have to choose Christ, people have to believe in Jesus in order to be saved, and all of these texts that he quoted, you know, ad nauseum, were an attempt to refute what was taught here in Romans 9. And I said, I have no quarrel with all of those texts in the Bible that says that you have to choose Jesus, that you have to believe in Jesus. And the one I hear every day is John 3, 16. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Do I have it right so far? You know? <laughs> that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This radio host recited that text to me at least ten times as if I had never heard of it in my life. And I said, you know, really, I, I not only am aware of John 3.16, I see it in every golf tournament where somebody holds up the placard. And I said, but, I said, what does that verse teach? It teaches that whoever believes in Christ, whosoever believes in Jesus won't perish but will have everlasting life. Let's reduce it to logical propositions. Whoever does A will not have B and will have C. It's very clear. That's what this text teaches, that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you'll not perish. You will have everlasting life. And I believe that. But then I asked the man, I said, now, tell me what this text says about who will believe or even who can believe. And he says, well, obviously, that if 
all who believe will be saved, that must mean that everybody has the ability to believe. I said, no, it does not necessarily mean that, particularly when in this same chapter, our Lord has just told Nicodemus that unless a man is born again, he can't even see the kingdom of God, let alone enter it. And in chapter 6 of this same gospel, Jesus labors the point that nobody in the flesh can come to Him, that left to themselves, our hearts are so corrupt that we're in a state of spiritual death that unless God the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and our ears, we will never choose Jesus. We will never believe in Jesus. And so all these texts that say that if you believe, you will be saved, do nothing to undercut the clear teaching what Paul, uh, that Paul is giving here in chapter 9. Now, the second way in which people get around this is by arguing that Romans 9 is not talking about individuals, but it's talking about nations. Remember, the Arabs came from Ishmael, and the Jewish people came from Isaac. And then, again, further Arabs came from uh, Esau, where the purity of Israel came through Jacob. And so, all Paul is talking about here in chapter 9 is not election to eternal salvation of individuals, but he's talking about God's sovereign, merciful selection of nations whom he sets apart for a particular blessing. Through Abraham, all the rest of the nations of the world be blessed, but chiefly he chooses the Jews as the conduit, the vehicle through which he will bring blessing to the rest of the world. And so the text has nothing to do with individual election. Strange, isn't it? When here, when Paul's making his point about election, he mentions individuals. Jacob and Esau. So how can you ignore that in this case that, that Paul is setting forth Paul specifically discusses the selection of one individual over another, Jacob over Esau, which we'll explore more in a moment, God willing. And so that, that argument falls by its own weight, and as I don't know any serious New Testament scholar that really tries to advocate that, at least not for very long. Now, closely related to that is the third argument that really what is in view here in Romans 9 is the electing of individuals for temporal blessings. That is to inherit land, possessions, herds and goats and that sort of thing that God will give to His people, but that the blessing that is in view here is not the blessing 
of individual salvation. I can't imagine a more astonishing interpretation of this text than that one. In order to interpret Romans 9 in that manner, you have to absolutely pull it out of all of its connection to what has gone before it for the first eight chapters. Remember, it's in chapter 8 that Paul introduces the doctrine of predestination, and we've looked at that. And the predestination that he develops in chapter 8 is unto what? Those whom he foreknew that he also predestined, those whom he predestined that he also called, those that he called that he also give ox and geese and maids all according. No, those whom he called did he also justify. Those whom he justified does he also glorify. So right there, Paul clearly puts the idea of predestination here in the context of personal salvation, which he has been developing from chapter 1, where he is explaining the gospel to people who are unjust and are in need of justification before the tribunal of God. So again, it's clutching at straws to try to see the apostle here in chapter 9 talking about anything other than real salvation in the ultimate sense of the word. Then finally, the fourth attempt to escape the teaching of chapter 9 is the one that I've already talked to you about on several occasions. The most popular view is that view that we call the doctrine of prescience, where it says that, yes, God does elect individuals, and He elects them to ultimate salvation, but the ground of that election is rooted in God's foreknowledge, His prescience, His prior awareness of what people will do when they are given the gospel. And so from all eternity, God knows who will choose Christ and who will not. And on the basis of His knowledge of the free decisions and free will responses of human beings, God from all eternity predestines those whom He knows who will respond properly unto salvation. This is the popular idea that we've looked at again and again through our study of Romans. God looks down the corridor of of time. He knows in advance who will say yes, who will say no, and on the basis of that divine foreknowledge, He chooses the yes-sayers, and He rejects the no-sayers. Now, let's listen to what Paul says. Not only this, but when Rebecca Rebecca also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, parenthetically, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of Him who calls." Here, the doctrine 
of prescience or a foreknowledge view of predestination is not only denied, dear friends, it's demolished. The apostle dusts off the spot where it stood because he addresses unambiguously the very concept that is at the heart of the prescient view of predestination. That's why I told you the first time that the doctrine of prescience does not explain the biblical doctrine of predestination. It denies it. And to make that clear, the apostle says, let's look at these two individuals. They were not only brothers, they were twins. They were womb mates. They had exactly the same environmental background, the same mother, the same father, the same birthday. And he says that the children not yet being born, that is, he reminds the reader that God's decree that the elder should serve the younger was made before either of the boys had been born. Well, the prescient advocate would stop me at this point, say, yes, that's right. That's right, Dr. Sproul. Uh, We agree that God's choice of Jacob over Esau took place before either one of them was born. We've always agreed, they would say, that election is rooted in eternity. And obviously, the decree that favors Jacob over Esau was made before either one of them had been born. So, what's the big deal? I say the big deal is that we have to ask the question, why would the apostle bother to even bring this subject up of the time of their choosing? It would be manifestly obvious that if these two individuals are the subject of divine election, that their election was settled before they were born. So, why even mention it? Well, what's the point that Paul makes here? That these children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil. For what reason? Here we have a subjunctive clause in the text that is a clause that indicates, without ambiguity, purpose. The very word purpose is used here, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of Him who calls. Or the other word for call here is of the one who elects. The reason for the decree, the reason that it came before these boys were born, before they had ever done any good or evil, was to make certain that the purpose of God according to election might stand not on the basis of anything these human beings did or would do, 
but that we may understand that it is based not on what we do, but on what God does. That it is according to the purpose of God. That His purpose may be exalted. That His purpose may be established. That His purpose and His purpose alone, dear friends, would be the ground of our election. The ground of our election is never found in us. If it's not clear there, I'll jump ahead of myself and we'll come back to it next week, God willing, at the very end of chapter, uh, or in, in verse 16, he says, so then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. The prescient advocates in the final analysis say our election is rooted and grounded on our will. It is of him who wills. It is some work that we do that is the grounds of divine selection and predestination. This is why we say that would be conditional election, that you have to meet a condition in order for God to elect you, which flies in the face of the very point that the apostle is laboring to overcome here in this portion of the text, that God's purpose might stand. You know, in all the discussions of predestination, it's inevitable that the issue comes down to free will, to the free will of the creature. And again, as I've mentioned to you before, the notion of free will that we bring to this text is a humanistic one, the idea of a will that's not enslaved by sin, that doesn't need to be liberated by the Holy Ghost an unbiblical understanding of the human will. But at the heart of this text that I've just read, ladies and gentlemen, is a profound affirmation of free will. And it profoundly teaches in the subjunctive clause that I've mentioned already that your salvation rests ultimately and eternally on free will. But it's not your free will. It's His. It's the free will of the Creator. The free will of the Redeemer. Who in His sovereign grace pours His mercy out upon those whom He is pleased to be merciful. And in this case, he distinguishes between Jacob and Esau, the younger and the elder. Normally in Jewish inheritance, the elder would receive the inheritance and would receive the blessing. But to make it absolutely certain that the blessing that is to be received here is not according to human works or human convention, that the purposes of God according to His election might stand, 
God turns it upside down and says, the elder will serve the younger. Jacob have I loved. Jacob, the supplanter. Jacob, the liar. The Jacob who has very little to commend himself for divine purposes in the record of his life in the Old Testament. But Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Now, some people read that and they say, that's it. Now you're talking that God hates people. Well, my minister told me that God loves everybody unconditionally. I'm sure your preacher did, but not this preacher. Now, how do we deal with this? I've written a whole book on this subject, just on this verse. Jacob, have I loved Esau? Have I hated? And when we talk about the love of God, I've gone over it before, we'll do it again. We have to be careful to distinguish among various ways in which the Bible speaks of the love of God. There are two ways in which the Bible speaks of the love of God universally. That love that He has for all people. The first is with respect to God's love of benevolence. And you look at that word benevolence. It has a prefix bene, which means good or well. And it, the word for will, from which we are called voluntary people, volitional creatures. So that benevolence means good will. And that God has a basic attitude of good will to all of His creatures in the world. And that posture or attitude of goodwill that God displays to the whole of humanity is shown by His love of beneficence. The love of beneficence has to do with God's giving good gifts to people indiscriminately. It's what Jesus meant when He said, that the Lord gives His reign to the just as well as to the unjust. God pours out gifts and benefits to people of every race and creed and disposition on this planet. So, with respect to benevolence, with respect to beneficence, God loves everybody. But there is a special dimension of love of which the Scriptures speak for which God reserves to Himself the sovereign right of selection. And that's what we call the love of complacency. Not complacency in the modern use of the term when we we identify complacency with an attitude of smugness. No. What is meant here originally with this term complacency is a love that takes delight in the object of one's affection. It is the love by which the Father loves the Son. It is Christ who supremely in Scripture is the Beloved. But the Father in pouring out His love of complacency upon His 
only begotten Son extends that love of complacency to all who are in Christ Jesus. Part of our adoption means that we are now included in that special redemptive love of God in a way that those who are outside the fellowship of Christ, those who are outside the adoption, those who are outside personal communion with Jesus do not share that extraordinary type of love. Now, here, when Paul recites the book of Genesis, when he repeats the word, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, we can't mean, understand the meaning of the term hatred to indicate that God has a malicious sense of odium within His being against this poor wretch by the name of Esau. It's not that God is filled with loathing toward him, although there are times in the Old Testament where that kind of loathing is attributed to God against evildoers and against impenitent people. But here we're seeing a love and hate contrast that these two poles are understood in relationship to each other in the sense in which those who do not receive the special love of complacency that I've already explained, lacking that, compared to that kind of love, the other love that they receive, beneficence, benevolence, and all of that, may as well be called hatred because it is such a lower degree of love. Jesus spoke this way when He says, if you want to follow Me, you have to hate your father and your mother, and your brother and your sister. Jesus was not commending to His disciples that they have an attitude of hostility towards their earthly parents. Remember, Jesus knew that those people were called to honor their father and their mother, and they're certainly not honoring their parents if they despise them. But Jesus is saying, comparatively speaking, as a manner of of speaking, that if you are going to love me, you must love me first of all. The love that you have for me must so exceed the love you have for your friends, your spouses, your mother, your father, your children, that by comparison, the love you have for them would be seen as hatred. You see this early on in the Old Testament where Leah complained about Jacob's love for her because Jacob had his deepest affection for Rachel. Rachel was the apple of his eye. Yet he was married first to Leah through the chicanery of Leah's father. And it wasn't as if Jacob was cruel to Leah, but Leah said, I am hated 
by my husband. And if you look at the context of that, what she is saying is, I am second in terms of his preference. And compared to the affection that he pours out on my sister Rachel, his feelings for me may be called hatred. Now, if there remains any doubt that Paul here is talking about sovereign election, if there still is some wiggle room left for those who find a way around Romans 9, just wait till next week (laughs) because Paul is just now beginning to get warmed up to his subject and he really drives it home in the final manner in what comes next, which God willing we'll consider together next week. Let's pray. With the apostle, O God, we ask what manner of love is this that we should be called your children. We come to you with nothing in our hand. We have no merit of our own no righteousness that would incline you to choose us. Our only hope, dear Father, is in your mercy, in your grace, in the kindness you extend to us. Because of your love for your Son, we thank you for that in his name. Amen.